Well, in the Worsley household, it's been uh, many years in coming, but finally we have a TV program that all five of us can sit down and occasionally enjoy together for an rare combination of, of competitive guesswork for the kids and historical buildings for my wife and the English landscapes for myself, uh, comes the British TV show Escape to the Country, uh, a program which helps couples who are weary of, of inner city living and allows them to exchange their, their, their dinky London apartment for some uh, 18th century uh, thatch cottage somewhere in a quaint English village. If only they could just pick one of the three homes that the real tour shows them. Uh, in all honesty, it's not exactly a high-stakes drama of a program. Uh, it's basically watching two people potentially buy a house. And indeed, there are many times as the credits roll uh, that we learn that the couple are just staying where they are. And after watching, I often wonder how we have been gripped by this for 45 minutes and how on earth this show has been going for 22 seasons. What is it? What is it that draws us in when we hear of a new destination? That gets us so enthusiastic about a new home and the possibility of escaping to the country? Well, the answer that the Bible gives is that we are all hardwired to look for a new home. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God made everything beautiful in its time and yet also placed eternity into our hearts. In Shakespeare's Hamlet, we read something similar. We all grunt and sweat by our weary life, but then the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. But wherever our earthly home is, there's this sense of, of restlessness in every heart. In this weary life, every human hopes of a new life. We all long to leave the sweaty cities of this earth. We all desire to escape to the undiscovered country. And in Revelation 21 and 22, it is that innate desire that the Apostle John taps into and touches as he writes. And yet, as we've seen, John does not tap into that innate desire in order to toy with those God-given emotions to make some money off his own 22-chapter show. No. Rather, John meets the resurrected Jesus again, and it's Jesus who gives John this vision of the future, a glimpse into the undiscovered country to which this old man is about to escape to, the new creation. And in our first sermon in this series, we ask the question, who will be there? Who will be there in the new creation? And in verses 1 to 8, if you can remember back to January... We saw Jesus revealing to John three pictures, three pictures describing who's there. For Christians painted by Jesus are brides who will be adorned, those made beautiful, and beggars, those who once thirsted for eternal life and have been given the free salvation in him, and beneficiaries who will live in light of that new land now. And it's to that new land that we turn this morning. And yet for all the newness of this undiscovered country, for all the excitement of this new home, for all the new things that our imaginations could dream up, what is most striking, I think, about Jesus' painting here, which John then writes down for us today, is the fact that this new home is primarily described by its dissimilarity with the old home. Well, firstly, at point one this morning, which almost acts like, like a banner over all subsequent points, what is the new creation like? It is not of this world. Point one, main point, not of this world. 
the start of the TV masterpiece, which is Escape to the Country. Uh, we meet the participants in their current home. They're, the brightness of the cameras are, are turned right down. The concrete jungle in which they roam is underscored. We, we, we see replays of them squeezing past one another in their tiny gray London kitchen. The camera gets right into their faces just to emphasize how small their flat is, and, and soon one of them is weeping as they remember tripping over the dog all the time. But then, then the couple get into the realtor's car, and they leave London, and he or she drives them up to an English hillside, and they get out of the car, and, it, and it's like they've arrived in the Shire. The contrast on the TV is so bright, I'm telling the kids to put their sunglasses on. And the realtor grins in the in understated tones and says, now this is quite different from where you currently live, isn't it? And the point is what lies before them is not of a world that they have known before. This potential new home will be radically new. And in verse 9, we kind of see something similar happening. For in verse 9, we meet a real estate agent, and the realtor in question is an angel. It's the same angel back in at Revelation 17 who showed John the city of destruction. And now this angelic uh, realtor, verse 9, drives John to a great high mountain to show John the new and holy city of Jerusalem. And yet in contrast to Escape to the Country where the participants look down at the, at the, the chocolate box English village that they could live, John, despite being on a great high mountain, has to look up. For end of verse 10, that the holy city Jerusalem came down out of heaven. It is exactly the same language you can see in verse 2. The first earth passed away, and the new Jerusalem came down out of heaven. For this dwelling place is literally not of this world. Which is obviously not to say that this new world bears no resemblance at all, to the world in which we live today, for there are many passages which, which would speak of us in heaven having bodies and, and working and singing and eating and enjoying life together. And there are passages which speak about this, this creation waiting, uh, awaiting its freedom from slavery. And there's a sense in which we enjoy a foretaste of, of heaven now in God's kingdom today, his church. So we're not to imagine ourselves in, in the new creation floating around in some kind of psychedelic spiritual planet and yet, we must not underplay the newness of the new creation. For the holy city comes down from heaven, from God. This, this new home is not of this world. And why am I stressing that seemingly obvious point? Well, the reason is because there are a number of theologians today who argue almost the opposite of that. For in their desire to, to rightly underscore the importance of all our work in the here and now, and the importance of rightly loving our neighbor and rightly caring for the environment, some argue that the church's central mission, or at least joint top task, is to partner in God's mission to restore the world in which we live today. And that is to go far too far. For not only is there a radical discontinuity here that goes far beyond just driving from a dirty city to a picturesque village, as we shall see, but more fundamentally, Christians are not called to build the new Jerusalem from the ground up because it is God's job to bring the new Jerusalem down. You know, in England, there's a famous 
very patriotic hymn, which was written by the poet William Blake. It was penned in the early Industrial Revolution when the English countryside was basically being invaded by lots of factories and mills. And the hymn itself it is called Jerusalem. And it goes like this. Did those, feet, did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountain green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem built here among those dark satanic mills? I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. The poetry is wonderful. And I love Blake's desire to, to preserve English culture and countryside, but the theology is terrible. Was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? That is not a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Jesus did not visit England. Was Jerusalem built in England's pleasant land? The answer is no. Heaven was not built here. Are we called to sleeplessness until Jerusalem has been built in England's green and pleasant land? The answer is no. Because we're not striving for some kind of utopian dream here. Because heaven is not of this world. Again, Yes, Christians, like the rest of humanity, are to tend and to rule this world well. We've been thinking about that in Genesis 1. And yes, Christians are to work hard in their jobs, whether they are, are ministers or, or marketing managers or, or mechanics or stay-at-home mums, for our work is our worship to God. We've been hearing about that in our Gospel at Work Sunday school class. But to think that we can build the new Jerusalem, and that that is our primary calling as Christians, is to go way beyond the clear picture here. Yes, Christians are to be stewards, faithful stewards of this world. That's why Christians have been known for making the world a better place, particularly in areas of medicine and social services and, and prison reforms and education. For Christians are to be faithful stewards of the earth, but Christians are not builders of the social structures of eternity. For first and foremost, when it comes to the new creation, the Bible says that Christians are waiting for it not building it. And hence, the primary mission of the church today is the same as it's always been since the Great Commission. For Jesus did not tell his followers to spend all their time and all their energy fluffing the pillows of, of the ruined home in which they live, but rather to use all they have ultimately to love people in the very best way they can by inviting them to an imperishable home, a home, thankfully, not of this world. Indeed, my chief aim this morning, in a sense, is to get us so excited about that new home that we cannot help but long to summons our unbelieving friends and family uh, to join us there. For what is the new creation like? It is not of this world. Which is actually what we most desire about it. In Escape to the Country, uh, one of the things that amuses me most is when the real tour uh, shows them the third house. Uh, for in the show, the third house is the so-called mystery house, uh, which is a very generous description of a house that has all the same problems as that old house, just in a different place. But for the realtor takes them to this mystery house and, and says with great drama, now this home could be yours, and this home is in your budget, and it's a very unique house because this house has its own uh, dungeon or, or private lake or something weird and cool. But the drawback 
as the couple soon discovers, is that the house doesn't address the couple's frustrations with where they live now. The house may have this cool dungeon, which makes great TV, but it's on a busy road of a country town. The house may have its own lake, but the, but the kitchen is even smaller than before. And the couple never buy it for that very reason. And that is because our dream home of tomorrow is the home that does not contain the pains of our world and home today. Our dream home of tomorrow is the home that does not contain the pains of our home today. Accordingly, as I've already said, the Apostle John primarily defines the new Jerusalem, the, the undiscovered country, our new home, by how it is unlike our current home. Indeed, John says there are four ways, four ways, in which our new home is not like our old home. And the first of these, subpoint one, is that the new Jerusalem contains no threats. No threats. In verses 11 to 21, John basically loads up the, the Zillow.com uh, property photos. And as we scroll through these verses, uh, we're perhaps initially drawn to the fact that our new home seems very colorful indeed. After all, verse 19 tells us that there are lots of, of precious stones, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and so on. And if we look at the picture in verse 21, we see that the floors are rather good for skidding around in your socks, for they're made of gold. However, as John takes us through these pictures, which are obviously a poetic metaphor, we, we see that most of them in, in verses 11 all the way to verse 21 are oddly pictures of three things. For John takes pictures not of the heavenly hallways or the, or the glorious games rooms, but rather John snaps two pictures of the foundations, six pictures of the high walls, and 11 pictures of the gates. And the reason for this is to underscore not the indulgence of heaven, which our minds quickly go to, but rather the impenetrability of heaven. Now, in biblical times, the, the key attribute of a city was its, was its foundations and its walls and its gates. That's why there's a whole book of the Bible, the book of Nehemiah, which is dedicated to the rebuilding of Jerusalem's foundations and walls and gates. Because of most of human history, the most important quality of a city was not its schools or its walkability or even its great restaurant scene, but whether it could cope with horrific threats from the evil world in which they dwelt. Accordingly, John is at a pains to highlight here that this place is not like this world. For in the Christian's heavenly home to come, there will be no more threat of evil. Verse 14, the foundations number 12, the number of completeness. And, and verse 12, the, the high walls, number 12, the number of completeness. And verse 16, the city is 12,000 stadia, the number of completeness multiplied by the number of perfection. And as a result, the city stands, verse 16, four square, constructed not like a wobbly Jenga tower, but with all the solidity of a Rubik's cube. And if that were not enough, in verse 13, John reveals that the New Jerusalem has 12 gates, each guarded by 12 angels. For those of us who know our Bibles well, it brings back visions of sword-drawn angels guarding the way back to the tree of life, or angels blocking the way of Balaam's donkey, or the angels managing to shield their eyes from the holiness of God in, in Isaiah 6. In the Bible, as well as being God's messengers, angels are known for being God's military-grade defense system. And so can you see, friends, the security in this place, it, it makes a mockery even of Fort Knox. 
indeed so safe, so safe is this place, so without any threat of evil forces, that verse 25 tells us that the gates are never even shut. Friends, is that not the safe city that you desire to escape to? The safe streets that you long to dwell in? The safe home that you inwardly crave? A city where where no one steals possessions or purity and no hurricanes sweep by. Streets where you let your kids play out with anyone. And no darkened alleyway is feared. A home where you don't have an alarm or even a key. Or feel threatened by anyone that you live with. Friends, what solid and secure dwellings will our loving Heavenly Father bestow upon His children? What contentment should mark the heaven bound now? What what new song shall we sing this morning for for the one who is building all those things for us? What a joy. What a joy to ponder that all the evil threats that may overwhelm us tomorrow morning when we wake up and and we check our phones, anxieties about a war with Russia or a new strain of COVID or about our house flooding or being fired at work or about our child's safety at school or who will care for us in old age. What a joy to ponder that all those threats will soon be gone. And friends, because of that, perhaps most apt for some of us here this morning, what risks for the gospel? What risks for the gospel might you take in this life because you know that your future in the next life is one of utter safety? What will the new creation be like? It will not be of this world. Wonderfully, there will be no threats. And yet, that is not the only thing which shall be removed. For secondly, in our heavenly home, there will be uh, no temple. So point two, no temple. Uh, In verse 22, the angelic realtor with his golden tape measure had just finished uh, giving John all the measurements of that city. But to John's great surprise, when he looks back, he, he sees that there is no temple in the city. Which is very strange because in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that a temple would be rebuilt. In, in fact, that the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 40 seems to have a vision very similar to John's here, where an angel details all the measurements of the future heavenly temple in Jerusalem. And yet, quite clearly, there is no temple. And if the Bible ended at the start of verse 22, that then surely it would have not been heaven at all. But the temple was where God dwelt. And so John looks at the angel, perhaps bewildered, and and thumbs through the the blueprints of the city again until he realizes, ah, ah, the, the, the city is the temple. Verse 22, look with me. I saw no temple, for its temple is the Lord and Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God gives it light, And its lamp is the lamb. The kind of gift box-like structure of the Old Testament temple, which sat ornate and unopened in the midst of old Jerusalem, holy and separate from this world, is now the, the dwelling place of the new world. For the metaphor is not so much that the gift of God's holy presence can now be opened, but that his holy people can now live inside the gift box. So can you plot the Old Testament theme? Those who trust in God's true temple, Jesus' holy body broken for our sin at the cross, and those who accordingly join God's holy temple today, the holy body of Jesus, the church where he dwells in our presence, those people 
shall soon live in God's ultimate temple. For in the new creation, Jesus' holy presence shall be as inescapable as the sunlight. For in the new Jerusalem, God will dwell with his people as he did within Eden. And no angel will bar the way to God. In our new home, the walls between us and our threatening world are raised up. But the walls between us and our affectionate God come tumbling down. And with all those barriers now gone, perhaps most amazing phrase in this whole section, chapter 22, verse 4, they will see his face. In 1783, there was a smallpox outbreak in London. And so King George III and his family were rushed to the edges of the city and to Kew Palace. And King George and his family survived all apart from his beloved son, Octavius. When they carried his boy away, when the king realized that he would never see his face again, in a voice unbecoming of British royalty, he shouted, there will be no heaven for me if Octavius is not there. You know, one of the most joyous aspects of heaven We'll be seeing Christians who have gone before us and seeing their faces once more. And the Bible gives us every assurance of such happy meetings to come. But friends, I do hope and pray that the face that that, that you and I shall be running to see above all other faces is the face of our lovely Lord Jesus. For in our heavenly home, the divine face shall no longer be veiled. No longer shall mortal men like like Moses have to turn away from the Lord's face as, as Matt read to us earlier. No longer will we go to the invisible God in prayer. No longer will we endure the, the frustrations of this world of, of, of divine sound and the, and the blessings of God's word and yet no joyous sight of him. For there will be no earthly temple and we shall see him face to face. Friends, you're not looking forward to that. To that day when your your prayers are transformed from one-way radio to -to face-to-face conversation. To that day when faith will be turned to sight. To that day when we shall see the one that we love the most. Friends, do you cry out similarly to George III? There will be no heaven for me if Christ is not there. Or is the thought of seeing him face to face not really that precious to you? Since you have a little relationship with him now. Friends, of all the things, of all the things not like this world, that the fact that there is no temple in heaven should be the thing that brings us the greatest joy and the greatest peace. For in his book, The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis, uh, pictures meeting God face to face like this. He wrote... Both the children were looking up and into the lion's face as he spoke these words. And all at once, they never knew exactly how it happened. The face seemed to be a sea of tossing gold in which they were floating. And such a sweetness and a power rolled about them and over them and entered them. And they felt as if they'd never really been happy or wise or good or even alive and awake before. And the memory of that moment stayed with them always. So long as they both lived, if ever they were sad or afraid or angry, the thought of all the golden goodness of that face and the feeling that it was still there 
quite close, just around the corner, or just behind some door, would come back to them and make them sure that deep down inside, all was well. What is the new creation like? It is not of this world, no threats, no temple, and thirdly, no trash. But what does the Apostle John observe next? Well, let's keep looking down there together. Verse 24, by its light, the nations will walk, that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, bringing in the glory and honor of the nations. For the first time in this section, people are seen. People are seen marching into their new home. In verse 24, the moving truck is being unpacked. And so in March, people from every nation, various royal figures throughout the ages, seen with armfuls of treasure. And this picture, well, this picture seems to, to cause John to, to draw breath again. For the established perfection of this heavenly home, with all its twelves now, will surely be ruined as the people of earth move in. The end of an episode of Escape to the Country, which I'm obviously very determined to have you watch now, when the couple have identified that their dream home, it's amazing how quickly the couple start to picture themselves living there. And when they do that, they paint the most idealistic picture ever imaginable. The husband says something like, oh, I can just imagine the two of us out in the backyard, gardening together, dear. The wife says, yes, I can see myself now having, having tea and cake with the grandchildren over there on the balcony. And the problem with that idyllic future has nothing to do with the new garden, nothing to do with the new balcony, but the fact that they will come and move in. For the dream of gardening together in total unity and the grandchildren sitting there quietly for tea and cake, well, the picture is momentary at best. The reality in a few weeks' time is probably the, a huge row about the rose brushes or, or the unruly grandchildren high on sugar swinging dangerously from a, from a now broken balcony having smashed grandma's favorite plate. Because sadly, that is what humans do so often. And so it would be odd if John were not a little worried about the people of the earth moving into this perfect home made of precious stone and glass. Indeed, you can almost imagine the, the apostle turning to the angelic realtor and asking, aren't these, aren't these nations just going to trash it? Aren't these kings and, and politicians going to wreck it? Because that's what people did to their first dwelling. Humans have a history with the homes that God has given them. Maybe we should at least have the angels stop bringing in all that earthly trash. But again, John is quickly reminded that the new creation is not of this world. For verse 27 reassuringly says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. No trash is detected in their possessions or in their person. No dirty secrets or bribes, no filthy lies or gossip in these kings and politicians. Can you picture the stunning scene? The holy angels of the New Jerusalem stand like the, like, the, like the guards at a security gate of the airport. And people bring their suitcases of, of earthly glories and people walk through the body scanners and, and, and no alarm is heard. But these people that enter through these gates not only bring no threat, but they don't bring any trash. Nothing unclean. Nothing unclean ever enters the new creation. Friends, how could that be? How can people like you 
and like me, with hearts still often so full of trash, with minds that are still so often full of junk, with mouths that still just churn out landfill, how can you and I ever hope to reside in such unpolluted dwellings where nothing unclean ever enters? Well, the answer is found at the end of verse 27. Because there we see that the people and the kings who enter are only the people and the kings whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb of God is obviously Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, at 1 John 29. And the Lamb's book is obviously a book filled only with names of people who have pleaded the Lamb's blood. Accordingly, for any here, for any here who have ignored Jesus, or for any here who, who have perhaps seen Jesus as some kind of great role model, but not as the Lamb who takes away their sin. My friends, with this vision before you, let me ask you a question. What is the heavenly home that you are hoping for? And what kind of people do you think can confidently move in there? And do you really meet your own qualifications for it? And looking back on your life in this world, do you really trust yourself not to wreck it? Friends, whoever you are this morning, please understand that no true Christian, no true Christian believes that they can just waltz into heaven. For Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is not about letting go of enough stuff so that we can enter nirvana. Christianity is not about bringing in enough glory that the Allah declares as clean enough to move in. No, Christianity begins with the humble recognition that left to ourselves, we shall stand outside the pearly gates and we shall look up in utter hopelessness of ever being able to be let in. Indeed, knowing that if we were to sneak into heaven, that it would instantly not be heaven anymore. Friends, there is one way one way alone when it comes to entering the Holy of Holies, speaking God to God face to face, and that is only through Jesus Christ. Only by trusting that Jesus bore all your trash on the cross, that he bore all your judgment for all your sin. Only by trusting that Jesus was the only one who was perfectly pure and that his righteousness can be yours, can anyone enter heaven. The question is, have you done that? Have you done that? For surely you can see that the, the only credit score high enough for the keys to the heaven is Christ's credit score. And the only way you sign the insurance contract is if, is if the contract is in Christ's name. For the title deeds of heaven are only granted to those whose names are written in the book of life. Only, only those who trust him may live with him. And for those of us who have, for those of us who are wonderfully trusted, who enter solely on the basis of the Lamb, well then wonderfully we may move in without any fear at all. In fact, we may waltz into heaven with, with all the confidence of two newlyweds having signed for their new home. For you and I are reminded here that we can never, ever trash our heavenly home. Despite what we may have done in this world, if we're in the Lamb's book, we shall cause no damage. For not only is our sin washed away in the Lamb's blood, Revelation 7, but here we see that we are washed in the holy waters of life, Revelation 22. And not only will all believers from every nation drink from those holy waters, but verse 2, we shall eat from the tree of life. In the first dwelling, 
that God made for his people, humanity ignored the tree of life. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, and that fruit brought hate between the nations. But now, there is no tree of knowledge to eat from, and only the tree of life with its perfect fruit, which verse 2 brings not hate, but healing between the nations. And so though we currently lament how we have trashed this first home, one day we shall dwell in a new home, which is impossible to trash, even if we tried. For verse 3, no longer will anything be accursed, with the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. What is the new creation like? It is not of this world. No threats, no temple, no trash, and finally, no time limits. In June of this year, I myself uh, will be escaping to the country. You'll be glad to know that I'm not going on the TV show, uh, and you'll hopefully be glad to know that I'll be back in July. But for the month of June, at least, I plan to escape to the English countryside uh, with the family for a vacation. And just like the TV show, there are currently three cottages all lined up, picked out, uh, one for each week we shall be staying. And for all that I love Nashville, I'm really looking forward to going home. Indeed, if the Lord wills, on Memorial Day Monday, I shall be uh, walking through fields of summer barley behind my parents' house. And yet, by the time I come back uh, on the next Monday holiday, by the time that comes back round, indeed, it will be the 4th of July. And everyone around me shall be celebrating being forever separated from my home. In all seriousness, I really enjoy 4th of July celebrations, for this country feels increasingly like home to me. And yet, and yet I know that there's a very real sense that by the end of my vacation, I know it'll be hard. I shall escape home to the country for a few weeks, but then I shall return to this big city. In fact, I've already received my times for my return flights. And the checkout times for each one of those cottages, the place for which I long, and the faces which I long to behold, and the home for which I ache will be limited by time. Indeed, even if I were to buy a country cottage there, those places and faces will soon pass away. And even the enjoyment of a home purchase would be limited by the fact that my own time one day will be up. Well, that is every home in this world. Everything is time limited. But friends, not in the next. Not in the next. Verse 5, very last verse. Look down with me. And night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, the heavenly home where there are no threats and no distance between you and God is a place with no time limits. Not a place without any sense at all of chronology, and yet a place where we're not limited by time. A place where blissful vacations will, will have no end date. A place where delightful evenings will have no bedtime. A place where deep conversations are not curtailed. A place where joyful days are not few and fleeting. 
You know, in this earthly home, the happiest times are rightly captured by photographs as brief moments of joy are, are frozen in time. But in our heavenly home, there will not be videotapes long enough to capture our unending ecstasy that will go on and on and on forever. And so my friends, in closing, I ask you not only to keep making your primary mission about inviting other people to that happy and forever home, as I said at the start, but also to ensure with Christ's help, of course, that you make it there. That you make it there because our home today it is not only so broken, but it is so brief. It is just a vapor. And you and I are almost there. Our time it is almost up. And so very soon we will go home where all those blessings will never, ever end. So please don't give up on escaping to the country, the undiscovered country, that glorious new home. For that was John's original message to the recipients of that vision in the first place, in the first century. That was the purpose of this letter, to encourage those who are weary of this world not to turn back in the face of this world, but to press on home to that home where all dangers are departed, to that home where we shall see our Father's face, to that home which we cannot ruin or wreck, to that home where we shall reign forever. Let us pray. We shall make it home. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, how we we praise you for your goodness in promising to bring us home. And Father, we rejoice in the wonderful certainty of that happy place where there will be no threats, where we will see you face to face and forever and ever. So Father, would you help us to live in light of that place now, to be working hard to call other people home to it, to be waiting patiently for it, and to be striving by your Holy Spirit to make it there. For your glory. Amen.